I invite you to take your Bibles out now as we turn again in our study to the book of Daniel uh, this evening, chapter 11. Chapter 11 of uh, Daniel. Last week we looked at chapter 10, which started the fourth and final vision. Uh, Chapters 10, 11, and 12 really uh, belong together, uh, but these are big sections, and so we're taking a chapter at a time. Uh, Tonight, uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 2 through 4 and then skip ahead to verse 21 and try to summarize verses 5 through 20 uh, briefly in the message. Uh, H.C. Leopold, a commentator, had this to say about chapter 11, quote, we do not see how it could be used for a sermon, end quote. So with that encouragement, uh, let's, let's begin. Daniel 11. Beginning at verse 2, reading through verse 4, and then skipping ahead to verse 21. And now, the angel tells Daniel, I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And then if you would uh, skip down to verse 21, we'll take it through the end of chapter 11. After speaking about a number of kings and a number of wars, verse 21 says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people." Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships from Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time for the end, for it still awaits the appointed time." 
Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the, end of the, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train." But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. If uh, Job is deep, uh, Daniel 11 is difficult. And so let's ask God's blessing uh, to help us understand these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, Romans 15 verse 4 says that these things in the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, were written for our encouragement, uh, that through endurance we might have hope. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, make clear your word as you intended it for Daniel and Israel, but also as you mean it for us, your church, today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the title of tonight's message is His Rage We Can Endure, taken from uh, Martin Luther's Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And the third stanza, which we'll sing after the message tonight, uh, begins this way. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And Luther was keenly aware that Satan is a real and present active and formidable enemy. And if Daniel wasn't, he certainly was after chapter 10 when he was visited by angels who peeled back the curtain and showed him a behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual conflict that takes place in the heavenly places between God's angels and Satan's demons as actual history is being played out, including our prayers. Remember last time, as Daniel offered prayers on behalf of his people, there was spiritual warfare that was transpiring. And tonight, in chapter 11, we're brought to the vision itself, where Daniel will see a sobering picture of things being played out. From the vantage point of Daniel, all of these events are future-looking, 
Two in the more immediate context and centuries following his own day, and one well into the future if we're interpreting it correctly. From our vantage point, we look back at the first two, and yet with Daniel, we still look ahead at the final. Daniel in this vision would discover that the 70 years of exile and the suffering that the Israelites experienced in that context was only a small fraction of the suffering to which they and the church in every age is called to endure. And the history of the church proves it. The church has been opposed and persecuted ever since its birth and will be until the final consummation. The devil is real and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is a relentless foe. On the one hand, we could overestimate Satan's fury and ability and power by assigning to him attributes that only belong to God and his divinity. And on the other hand, we could underestimate Satan, which is probably more likely in our context, to our own peril, forgetting his rage, forgetting his fury. The question that must have been wrestling in Daniel's mind is the same question that maybe we wrestle with in our own day. Will we, as the church, as the people of God, be able to endure the rage of Satan? And if so, on what basis? Well, I want to begin this evening and focus our attention on first the bad news. And there is a lot of bad news in chapter 11. Verse 2 begins, the angel picks up where we left off at chapter 10 and says, and now I will show you the truth. And then he speaks of three additional Persian kings followed by a fourth. This is referring to King Xerxes, who we learn about in the book of Esther, who becomes Esther's husband who then is replaced by this mighty ruler, verse 3, a mighty king who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is, as we've seen before, Alexander the Great. And yet Alexander the Great kingdom would not last forever, and it would come to an end, and it would be dispersed and divided into four kingdoms. And basically what we have in verses 5 through 20 is a detailed description of the historical events that transpire in the centuries following Daniel's day between these kingdoms. But what is of interest to Daniel and what should be of interest to you and to me is, is, is the fact that these Wars and these conflicts and these kings to the north in Syria and the Seleucid nation and to the south in Egypt and the Ptolemies, they're given their direction in relationship to the glorious land. In other words, they're kings to the north and kings to the south in relationship to Israel. Why? Because this is God's history and specifically this is the history of God's people. And sometimes they were in the middle of these conflicts. Sometimes they even participated in them. But it's verse 21 where we picked up our reading, where I want to focus your attention. We're introduced in verse 21 
to the same ruler that we've looked at already back in chapters 7 and 8, whose jurisdiction included that of Israel, a man, a tyrant by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And there are two characteristics of his leadership uh, that I want to highlight. First is his ability to deceive, and secondly is his ability to destroy. He is a deceiver, and he is a destroyer. In fact, we're told that he gained the throne by his deception. Verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. But deception didn't just win him the throne, it also tragically won him followers. And some of those followers sadly included members of the household of God. Look down with me at verse 32. It goes on to say of Antiochus, he shall seduce with, here's the word again, flattery, those who violate the covenant. In other words, some of God's own people were swept away by his empty promises. We don't know the details of what those promises were, but they were flatteries. I'm reading that great story, The Chronicles of Narnia's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis with my son. And recently we came to that scene where Edmund met the white witch for the first time. And she convinced him to join her side. How? Turkish delight. Through seduction. Through flattery through the empty promise of one day becoming a king at her side. For much of the church, certainly for the church in the West, our biggest danger is probably at least not yet persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Seduction by the world. Antiochus was a deceiver, but he was also a destroyer. Look down with me at verses 30 and 31. Speaks of ships from Ketim, that is, from Rome, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and be what? Be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant, against God's people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsook the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And he shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. As we've seen before, this Antiochus Epiphanes killed tens of thousands of faithful Israelites. He desecrated the temple. He offered a pig on the altar of sacrifice. He erected a statue to Zeus in the holy place. And he stuck up his nose against the living, creating God. This was the vision that Daniel receives. This was the truth that Daniel gets from this angel. And it was a horrible vision. 
For Daniel, it included some of his own people being killed or some being seduced and leaving the faith. Most scholars believe a shift occurs, a pivot happens in verse 36. Most conclude that while there are many parallels here uh, with Antiochus still in verses 36 to 45, this cannot completely explain Antiochus. There's details that just don't historically add up. Leading most scholars to conclude that what is spoken of here in these final verses of chapter 11 is the Antichrist. This figure that is yet to come, and yet uh, there are many similarities, many parallels between Antiochus and the Antichrist, and we shouldn't be surprised by that because there are many Antichrists, that is, many who have the spirit of the Antichrist, which includes a craving for autonomy and for self-divinity. Look with me. Verses 36 and 37, speaking of this Antichrist. And the king, verse 36, shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper Till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. And brothers and sisters, notice the same characteristics that were true of Antiochus are true of the Antichrist. Deception and destruction. He will deceive and he will destroy those in his wake. The end of verse 39 speaks of his deception. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. But we keep reading and we come to verse 44. And it says, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. What a horrible vision for this godly saint, Daniel. Even though these were speaking of times and Daniel couldn't have known all of this, but in uh, centuries after his own day, Antiochus, some 350, 400 years after Daniel, and certainly if this is the Antichrist, we don't know when he will appear, but there will be many spirits of the Antichrist that will come upon the church. For Daniel, just when he thought his people's suffering was over, there was more, and then there was more, and then there was more. Like another mountain peak ahead, and then another one, and then another one. We could think of Psalm 13, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must we take counsel in our soul and have sorrow in our hearts all the day? How long shall our enemies be exalted over us? 
That's the vision that Daniel receives. It's scary. It's real. These things actually take place. In fact, the the detail in verses 5 to 20 is striking, leading liberal scholars to conclude that these things spoken of must have been written after the fact when we know that they were written before because God is its author and because God knows all things. Well, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story in Daniel chapter 11. Against the backdrop of the bad news is good news. And there are three things that jump off the page when I read Daniel 11 that would have encouraged Daniel and that ought to encourage us tonight. Number one, Israel's present suffering was not unique. Israel's present suffering was not unique. Remember the context. This vision that he is receiving takes place two years after the exiles first returned back to the promised land. But everything went south as soon as they showed up, leading to, I would guess, one of Daniel's greatest disappointments in life, to hear the reports back of the struggling returnees who didn't make hardly a dent in rebuilding the temple, who were opposed and oppressed and persecuted by their enemies. This vision helps Daniel to see that his people's present suffering back in the glorious land is not unique, but in fact, his people's suffering is normal. Is normal. Part of the reason we struggle so much with suffering is that we don't expect to suffer. And part of the reason we don't expect to suffer is that we have drunk the Kool-Aid of the American dream. That we are entitled to the right of comfort and ease and a pain-free existence. The very opposite of which the Apostle Peter teaches in his first epistle, where he addresses a suffering church, a church under tribulation, a church under intense persecution. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you are undergoing. For to suffer for Jesus' sake is to follow in the footsteps of your master. Luther spoke of these things in terms of a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. In a theology of glory, there's no suffering, there's there's no pain, there's only victory, there's only ease. But a theology of the cross says we are called, as Jesus said, to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And so this vision as alarming and as scary and as overwhelming as I'm sure it was for Daniel 
to hear of these future persecutions and tribulations in a sense as the, the curtain is pulled back, he's able to see that my people back in the promised land, their suffering is not unique. In fact, it's normal to face opposition. It's normal as you follow Jesus Christ for the devil to be close at hand. It's normal when you want to turn over a new leaf and live for God's glory for Satan to be right at your door, right at your, 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 uh, your, your desires bringing his temptations. Israel's present suffering wasn't unique, but secondly, Israel's suffering was not random. It wasn't random. Woven through every war, conflict, event, and person is the invisible hand of a sovereign God. There's a three-letter uh, three word in uh, chapter 11 that's repeated over and over again. The word is... B-U-T, but. Let me just give you a sampling. Verse 4, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Verse 5, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger. Verse 6, after some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Verse 9, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And this is repeated in verses 11, 12, 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 27, and 29. Over and over and over again, you see the hand of God orchestrating all of these events, every last detail. In fact, every single one of these world leaders comes to nothing. As the prophet Isaiah says, they are a mere drop in the bucket of God. Even Antiochus Epiphanes, even the Antichrist, Our passage ends, verse 45, with these words, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, that he will be killed and brought to nothing. How? By the breath of of Christ's mouth. Isn't that amazing? The Antichrist who deceives and destroys will be brought to nothing, will be killed by the breath of Jesus. Israel's present suffering was not unique. Israel's suffering and the church's suffering throughout the ages is not random, but sitting on the throne as a sovereign God. Thirdly, Israel's suffering, brothers and sisters, see this, Israel's suffering and the church's suffering is not the end of the story. It's not. It's not the end of the story. Though sometimes it can feel that way when the church is, is being persecuted and even being killed. 
which is happening all over the world today. In the 20th century alone, more Christians were martyred for their faith than the previous 19 combined. This is real. Men and women and boys and girls are being killed for reciting the Apostles' Creed, for singing the songs of the faith, for listening to gospel preaching. In fact, the question still remains. It's one thing to see the demise of Antiochus Epiphanes, this historical figure who lived in the second century B.C. It's, it's even something to say, well, the Antichrist is going to be blown away by the breath of Christ's own mouth. But what about the devil? What about Satan and all of his rage and all of his fury? Because even the worst of human dictators are mere imitations of Satan's fury and rage and wrath. Scripture speaks of him as the great deceiver in the Garden of Eden. What did he say to Eve? You shall be like God. And she took of the fruit and she ate and gave it to her husband and he ate. And he continues to deceive. He often shows up as an angel of light, speaking falsehoods and in half-truths and shades of gray, deceiving, flattering, seducing the church to come and to join her, and to join him. But he's not only the deceiver, he's also the destroyer. He's the destroyer. And he's the prince of the power of the air. And he's called elsewhere by Paul, the God of this world. Will he end? Will he win in the end? Will Satan win? Will his rage overwhelm us? Well, there was a, a period of time in history when it, it, it almost appeared as if he had won. On a, on a Friday, on a cross. When Jesus Christ was nailed. It appeared that Satan had raged so strongly that he had won the victory. And yet even here we see the sovereign hand of God working all things out because it was the will of God the Father to send the Son upon the cross to crush, yes, the Son, but also to crush the head of the serpent forever. Jesus came to deliver you and me from our sins and bondage to Satan, but he also came to make war on the enemy. And then on the third day, he won that decisive, never-to-be-revoked-again victory when he rose again from the dead to give us life and hope and peace. But his rage goes on. 
he knows that his time is short. And so he continues to seek to deceive some by flattery and seduction. And at times, he also destroys those who are faithful. There's something in the text that I want you to see in verse 32. What's the difference between those who are seduced by flattery and those who are found to be faithful? Look with me, verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but, there's another B-U-T, but the people who, what? Know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God who know that He is for them, that He is with them, that He is a God of power and sovereignty and a God of faithfulness who holds them fast, a God who, who has reconciled them to Himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know about this God or do you know Him personally? Do you trust in Him? Are you trusting in Him tonight? You see, the hymn's right. We, we, our, our confidence is not in our ability to hang on, but on God's promise, His covenant promise and faithfulness to hang on to us. As we trust and look to Him, we know that He is God and we know Him by faith and are able in His grace to stand firm even through death. Even death cannot separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Even in death, we can endure Satan's rage. For those in Jesus, the devil can't touch us. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. And what's the word? But the word of the cross. The gospel word. It is finished. And one day, one glorious day, to which chapter 12 points us, we'll get there, Lord willing, next time, our suffering will be turned into glory. And our faith will be turned into sight. So dear brothers and sisters, Wait patiently, pray without ceasing, and rejoice in hope. There's a lot of bad news, but the good news shines far greater, far brighter in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to defeat the works of the devil, to destroy him forever. And to set anyone free who comes to Jesus by faith alone. 
Let's rejoice together this week as we serve him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word tonight. Lord, it's, it's a difficult word, both in terms of understanding it, but also in terms of the weight of it, of just seeing a picture, a graphic picture of all that awaits the church. As we see behind us in church history, this is true. The church has been persecuted and torn asunder and oppressed. And yet, even where we are now, Lord, we don't know how long until Jesus will come. We pray, come quickly. But Lord, in the meantime, we're called to a theology of the cross, a theology of suffering, a theology of waiting until that day when we, like Christ, will be exalted. Father, encourage us tonight with that hope and that conviction, and may we stand firm knowing that you are our God and you do all things well in Jesus' name. Amen.